Tonight's Bible reading will come from 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 1 to 10, and that's found on page 1169. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you, mentioning you in our prayers. We continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is God's word. So tonight, I'm hoping that you'll be comforted that you've been chosen, that you were dearly loved by God. I hope that you'll be encouraged and inspired in your service to God and that you'll find strength to persevere in trials and suffering. Because this is what this letter to the Thessalonian church is all about. Paul, you can read through the whole the letter and the encouragement and warmth and love that Paul has for this church just abounds and goes through the whole letter. He seeks to encourage the whole church about the second coming of Christ and to encourage them in their perseverance in their sufferings. One of the great things about this particular passage that we're looking at is you see the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. We see that the Father has chosen us and dearly loves us. We see that the Holy Spirit works through us and it's without the Holy it's only by the Holy Spirit we get to do the things that we do. And right at the end, we're reminded about the saving power of the Lord Jesus Christ. We won't see it tonight necessarily, but 1 Thessalonians is one of the few letters, one of the few parts in the Bible where Paul speaks about the second coming of Christ. Very few places in the Bible actually speak about it in the way that it comes through in this letter. But if you went to the first story of the Thessalonian church, Paul's first experience of the Thessalonian church, you wouldn't think that this type of letter would be written. So let's turn to Acts 17. If you've got your Bibles there, turn to Acts 17, because what we see here is when Paul first went to Thessalonica, Thessalonica even. And I'll read, when Paul and his companions had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, They came to Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue and on the three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul 
and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and quite a few prominent women. But other Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to a crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the other believers before all the city officials, shouting, these men have caused trouble all over the world and now they have come here. And Jesus has welcomed into his house. Moving down to verse 10 there. The believers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I'll just stop there. See what they just did? They examined the scriptures to see if what Paul said was true. Do that tonight. Test me. Right? Read the scriptures and test me. But when the Jews in Thessalonica had learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, some of them then went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The believers immediately sent Paul to, to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The early days of the Thessalonica church paint a different picture, don't they? And it's with this background that we have this letter. And it's amazing to think that when Paul gets the news about the work of the church at Thessalonica, about the love that they have for Christ and the love they have for fellow believers, all came from a, from a city that rejected this, these people. So, if we move to verse 4, Paul gives his great thankfulness. He, we always, sorry, verse 2, we always thank God for all of you, continually mention you in our prayers. And in verse 4, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you, because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. Paul says a few things, four things to note firstly. Brothers and sisters, Paul's highlighting a new bond that the church have with each other. John MacArthur records that the Macedonian city, Thessalonica was in Macedonia. The Macedonian city is a cosmopolitan city, has native Greeks, Romans, sailors, travellers, tradesmen, businessmen. It was a seaport on, a, on, a, on the great highway that linked Rome with the eastern parts of the, of the empire. Now, under the old covenant, we know that God's choice of people, God's chosen people, were identified through the nation of Israel, don't we? Pharisee and Gentile were like oil and water. They did not mix with each other. But through Jesus, the converted become God's people. Through the early church in the Thessalonica made up such a wide variety of people. When you look back at Acts, what we just read, in Acts, what did it say? Some Jews and Greeks came to know Jesus as well. And so Paul highlights that no longer are God's people identified through the nation of Israel. Paul highlights that God's people are now identified through Jesus Christ. And in this context, he calls them brothers and sisters. That's unique. And we all here tonight, we are brothers and sisters in Christ. We've got a bond together that is through Jesus. And we should remember that and we should embrace it. We're all one people under Christ 
regardless of our background, regardless of how much we earn, regardless of our nationality or our occupation or our age. We are all brothers and sisters under Christ. Secondly, and we've already spoken about this, Paul reminds the church they are loved by God, but not just loved, but chosen. This is a reality that Paul wants to highlight. Paul's reminding us, though, because we are chosen, what's he saying? It's got nothing to do with us. There's no choice we have in this. It is all of God. And if you look at John 15, if you, if you pull John 15 out, Jesus, after, the, after Judas had left the upper room, talking to the disciples, what does Jesus say? As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. At verse 13, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And at verse 16, he then says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Thirdly, Paul refers to our gospel. What does he say, verse 5? Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power. What was Paul's gospel became our gospel, became the, not just the gospel of Paul as he presented to them, they took it as, as their own, became the gospel of Paul and the church of Thessalonica. They all owned it. Paul recognises that they have owned this gospel. And then the, the gospel came with power and deep conviction. It wasn't simply with words. The faith of the Thessalonians was a living and true faith. It wasn't inactive. It wasn't dead. Remember that the Thessalonica, being in Macedonia, Greek gods, lots of idols, and the gods of those days, what were they? Carved out of stone, carved out of wood. They sat on the shelf. They're an image of a cow or any other creature that people chose to carve something out of. They were dead idols. They were dead gods. Paul's talking about an active, living God. It's also a faith. He talks about the faith that comes with power. And it's a faith that doesn't melt under persecution. What you saw in Acts 17 and what Paul says in this passage is that the Thessalonica church were under severe pressure, severe suffering. True faith doesn't melt under the pressure of persecution. And so when Paul says the gospel came with power and deep conviction, that's what he's referencing. This is not a shallow faith that the Thessalonica church have. And when you think of, say, the parable of the sower, what's one of the seeds? The seed that sat into rocky ground... And what happened? When the, seed, when the sun came up and scorched the seed, the seed died. Right? The rocky ground and the sun on the seed in the rocky ground symbolises suffering and persecution. And the Thessalonica church are clearly not the seed that comes out of the rocky ground. They're the seed that have come out of the good soil, aren't they? So with that then... Paul gets really specific about what he's, praying, what he's thankful for. He says in verse 3, 
We remember before, before our God, your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, your endurance inspired by hope in, the, in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is deeply thankful for th- these three virtues. Now, these three virtues are a common theme throughout the New Testament and in particularly a common theme for Paul. You might, you, you'll see it in a number of passages, the most famous of which, you know, you'll know this, 1 Corinthians 13. Faith, hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. But you can also go to Romans 5, you can go to Colossians 1, uh, Peter talks about it in his epistles as well. The three virtues of faith, hope and love is what Paul is remembering as values or, or uh, attributes that the Thessalonica church are carrying. So the first one was work produced by faith. True faith, by its very nature, results in work. It's faith first, then works. It's not the other way around. It's a natural result of our faith that we work. And you know this from a number of passages. Firstly, Ephesians 2. What does it say? For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this is not from yourselves, is it a gift from God, not by works so that no one can boast. But it's more than that, isn't it? What does verse 10 say? Our works are our purpose. The works we have, the works we do, are assigned to us by God. They're given to us by God as what we must do in response to in obedience to him. God gives them, in the end of verse 10 of Ephesians 2, for our work, for we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. And we also know James 2, don't we? What does James 2 say? Again, common passages. We know these by, almost by heart. James 2, in the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. Faith without deeds is dead. Our faith produces work. And our work is coming out of obedience to the Lord Jesus Christ. Oswald Chambers puts it like this, and remembering that our work is coming out of obedience. Obedience to God. We were slaves to sin. We now become slaves to righteousness, don't we? Out of being slaves to righteousness, we now have a work to do, and that work's been assigned to us by God. Oswald Chambers puts it like this, The level of my growth in grace is revealed by the way I look at obedience. We should have a much higher view of the word obedience. Rescuing it for the mire of the world, obedience is only possible between people who are equals in the relationship to each other, like the relationship between father and son, not that between master and servant. Jesus showed this relationship by saying, I and my father are one. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And Walsall Chambers says this, The son was obedient as our redeemer because he was the son, not in order to become God's son. Jesus' work on the, on the cross didn't achieve 
um, God's, his position with God. He was already there, but his obedience demonstrated him as the son of God. And so what does that mean for us as a church? Is our service in the church a chore or a privilege? Do the things we do for the church, for fellow believers, for our families, are they a chore or are they a privilege in service? One personal reflection, and trust me, this is not trying to be a guilt for Tuesday night, (laughs) but attendance to prayer meetings. I used to view the prayer meetings, it was a real struggle. And there were times there where I really didn't want to go. But it's now a pleasure, even though I've had a long and busy day, when we get to a prayer meeting and we see the people there, the joy and the encouragement and the enthusiasm we experience as a body of believers praying together is a privilege to pray as a group of people, as a group of fellow believers. It's not a chore. I see people like the music team, I see people on the mowing roster, I see people cooking dinners, I see people picking up others to bring them to church. And they're not a chore, are they? People are doing those things out of love, out of a sense of privilege, out of a sense of purpose for what they're trying to do, out of love for God. Work produced by faith. The second virtue, Paul says, a labour prompted by love. The Thessalonians have been remembered for the labour, for their labour, which is arduous, laborious, it's a toil, it's unceasing. That's what it means by labour. We hear people talk about their labour of love and it could be a hobby, it could be a commitment to a charity or a social purpose. We know we care for sick uh, parents, we, uh, sick husband or wife, our children. These are tiring tasks, but our love allows us to carry on and persevere through those things. We do these things with our expectation for reward or favour. And we know, though, that there's no better example of a labour of love than the work that Jesus did on the cross. The, Jesus, the work that Jesus did, uh, the labour of Jesus on the cross was a love that was not earned. There was no merit in the love that took him there. And it was a love that was given not for gain. It was a sacrificial love. And so when we labour, when we persevere, when, it, again, laborious, arduous, toiling hardship out of love, we don't do it for gain, do we? We do it out of love for God. We do it out of our love for people. And when we reflect again on the 1 Corinthians passage of love, what Paul teaches, we have love. If we don't have love, we labour in, in vain. We gain nothing. Paul says, if I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I might boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. We can work as hard as we like, whether in the band, but if they have not love for God and they have not love for their congregation, they gain nothing out of that service. And the third virtue, endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the word here for endurance is staying the course under extreme pressure until the very end. Think of 
Today we had the city to surf. Or think of a marathon runner, right? One thing about endurance is it's not passive, it's not inactive. You actually have to do something. And so there's, endurance is not being resigned to your fate. It's not succumbing and just accepting the lot that you've been given. It's an active work that you're undertaking. And so when you run a marathon or you run the city surf, what do you have to do? You actually have to put some effort in, don't you? Because you're not going to get to the end if you don't work. It's an active endurance. And if we want to sit down and be passive, then that's not what Paul's talking about here. The early Thessalonica church, what does Paul say? Let me go back to the passage. It's out of order now. He says they were in the midst of severe suffering. They persevered in the midst of, a per, of uh, severe suffering. Hebrews 6 says this. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work. The love you have shown him as you helped these people and continue to help him. We want each of you to know want each of you to show the same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realised. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. So the second part of what Paul's talking about here is endurance inspired by hope. What do we have hope in? Our hope is something we can boast in. Our hope leads to endurance. Our hope is a real hope. It's not passive or inactive, It is a certain hope. And what is the hope? What is the object of our hope? Paul says it, doesn't it? Inspired by our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5, we boast in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings. We endure through our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character what? Hope. And so as the, as the Thessalonica church have suffered, so they have established their hope and proven their hope. And so one of the challenges we have then is how do we respond to suffering? When our anxieties and fears pressure us, how many times have we thought, oh, what cancer have I got this time? How many times do we fear of losing a job? How many times do we go through a broken relationship? How many times do we fear irrationally and yet Christ maintains us the whole time? Our hope in the Lord Jesus Christ sustains us. All those things that I just mentioned are simple compared to what the Thessalonica church put up with, isn't it? They were going through severe suffering and trials and yet they still had hope. We should be responding the same way in hope. And what a great comfort we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Philippians, when he's riding in chains, and he says, I can persist through all these things, through Christ who strengthens me. Paul's hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And it's the Lord Jesus Christ that allows him to persevere through the sufferings, persevere through being chained up and persevering through being in want. Our work produced by faith, our labour prompted by love, our endurance inspired by hope. These are the three virtues that Paul remembers, but they're not available to us unless the Holy Spirit comes to us with power and with deep conviction. So having gone through the three virtues, Paul then comes, identifies three attributes, three evidences that the Holy Spirit has come upon the church, has come upon the church with power and deep conviction. And so what does he say at verse 6? You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Throughout his letters, Paul, on many occasions, calls for the church to imitate him and to imitate Christ. 1 Corinthians 11, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Ephesians 5, follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children and in the way of love and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And then 1 John chapter 2, but if anyone obeys his word, Love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him, Jesus. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. We're to imitate Paul. We're to imitate the Lord Jesus. The Thessalonian church worked out their love, worked out their faith and became imitators of Paul. And what's happened is Paul's gone and preached to the Thessalonians, has been kicked out of Thessalonica, right? He's been sent away. But what's happened? The message of the work of the church has been reported to him. And that's, again, what has been triggering this letter. And so when we think about becoming imitators of Christ, becoming imitators of Paul, who do we imitate? Do we imitate Paul? Do we imitate those faithful believers within our church or people that we know? Do we imitate, we see the kids running around trying to be Lionel Messi or a Shane Warne, maybe not Taylor Swift, Taylor Swift in the case of my daughters. Um, <laughs> or is it the latest trends that people are trying to keep up with? Who are we imitating? Are we trying to imitate Christ? Are we trying to imitate the faith of believers that we live with and, and, and uh, live around? When we're in our workplace, who do people see we are? Do we just meld into the background with all the other people or do we stand out as being different? Paul, in all these letters, says, be holy, therefore, just as Christ is holy. Set yourselves apart from this world. Don't imitate this world. Imitate Christ. What do we do? What do we do? Are we trying to be the best godly servant we can or are we just trying to follow everyone else and follow the crowd? And so the encouragement here for us, though, is we see the Thessalonica church. And what does Paul say in verse 7? And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia. That's powerful words in the midst of severe suffering 
this church, they could have followed all the other, the rest of the city. Continue worshipping idols, ungodly behaviour, drunkenness and adultery and all these things. But what did they do? They put aside all those things and became imitators of Paul and became imitators of Christ. And when we talk about becoming a model for all other believers, the word there around the model is referring to a mark, a stamp, an indentation, that the people have been indelibly marked with the gospel. Are we indelibly marked with the gospel, so identified with the gospel that everyone else there is really clear as to where we stand? Or do we still carry the baggage of this world because we haven't let it go? You look, look at the Apostle Paul and you go to Acts 9, I think it is, when Paul's on the road to Damascus. Right? Here's a guy, and I'm sorry, I can't remember who said this, it, it, it was in one of the readings. Paul had been a severe persecutor of Christians, but upon being met by the risen Lord Jesus on the road to Damascus, Paul was changed from a strong-willed, intense Pharisee into a humble, devoted slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul became an imitator of Christ. He calls the Thessalonica church, he calls us all to be imitators of Christ. He calls us all to be imitators of him. And Paul's gone from that person who persecuted and, and ordered the death of how many Christians, but became a hum, humble, devoted slave of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 8. I haven't put the verse reference there. It's 2 Corinthians 8, verse 2. In the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely of their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people and they exceeded our expectations. They gave themselves first of all to the Lord and then by the will of God also to us. Paul's saying to the Corinthian church, and sorry, I skipped over verse 1 there, the grace given to the Macedonian church. The Macedonian church that Paul's referring to here is the Thessalonica church because that's where the church is. And he's saying to the Corinthians, here's a church you should model. Here's the church you should imitate. Paul doesn't say this about any other church, and yet he says it about the Thessalonians. Why? What is it about them? And I think we've been seeing it. Next attribute, joy in the midst of severe suffering. For you welcome the message in the midst, verse 6, you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering with a joy given by the Holy Spirit. It was severe suffering. It wasn't just any suffering. It was severe. It was persistent. You saw when we read the, um, the passage in Acts that not only did they um, kick them out of town, they chased them to the next town and caused trouble for them there. And you can just imagine 
what's going on back in Thessalonica as the gospel started spreading. And one of the things that when Paul, when you look later in, in 1 Thessalonians, what you see is that it talks about people who have passed away. Now, we don't know why they've passed away, but was it because of persecution? Was it because of sickness and illness? But the church is going through some severe suffering and yet they have joy. Yet they have joy. Back to 2 Corinthians 8, in the midst of a very severe trial. Their overflowing joy, Paul says, overflowing joy. Their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. Poverty leading to generosity, rich generosity. How does that work? It can only work by the power of the Holy Spirit. They gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely of their own. What did they do? They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to God's people. Do we plead to be engaged in God's service? sharing in the privilege of serving God? This joy in the midst of suffering is an attribute that Paul says is evidence that the Holy Spirit has come with power. Think of the uh, Acts 5. The apostles left the Sanhedrin. And what happened? They were leaping and dancing with joy, weren't they? And what had happened? The Sanhedrin had told them not to preach the gospel. Not only that, they told, they whipped them, they tortured them. And what did the apostles do? They didn't just walk out with their tails between the legs. They walked out in joy, celebrating that they'd been cho- uh, deemed worthy to suffer for the gospel. Do we have that same hope in suffering? We have that same joy and suffering. We live a pretty easy life, don't we, compared to many. We got, but when we come across people who don't know the gospel, how do we react? Do we want to share that with them? Do we have the privilege and joy of sharing the gospel? Hebrews 12. It's talking about Jesus. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Jesus, as we know in Luke 22, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, the Lord Jesus being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Martin Luther says, why, when Jesus was given a crown of thorns, do we expect a crown of roses? Why, when the Lord Jesus Christ is crucified and suffered and humiliated on the cross, do we expect to avoid suffering as Christians? If the Lord Jesus is not spared, why should we? And yet the Lord Jesus, for the joy set before him, went to the cross. The Thessalonica church, in the midst of severe suffering, had joy and in the privilege of serving God. As a church, do we have joy as we serve God?
or do we get downtrodden by the pressures of this world? And throughout all of that, the next attribute, verse 8, the Lord's message rang out from them, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Their faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception they gave us. Paul didn't have to say anything about this because the work, the endurance and the labour spoke for themselves. And that message rang out. In a world that was so full of gods and false idols, the message of the Christ, the message of Christ rang out and overcome those messages. The faith of the Thessalonians naturally resulted in the preaching of the gospel. The, the, when it says rang out, it wasn't just a bell. It was a blaring trumpet. The word means a bl- like a blaring trumpet or a rolling thunder, a bold and continual trumpeting of the gospel. Is that, does that define our church? Does the gospel ring out like rolling thunder from this place. We have a responsibility to spread the gospel. And in fact, when you go back to John 15, verse 16, we've been appointed to bear fruit, haven't we? Our purpose is to bear fruit. Our purpose is to preach God's word in all we do. And sometimes we won't know how that happens. And I'll just give one example I spoke to a guy, he knows me, we're in a, in a, at a lunch and one guy was talking about, he was just ogling the, um, the, the waitress and was talking about pornography and could not believe that I had no part in it. And I just said, sorry, that's not me. And yet, and this guy just reminded me of it uh, a couple of weeks ago, that it still resonates with him on that particular day that this guy was doing what the world was doing and yet I was doing something different. Now, it's not of me, that's all of God, remember? I was just being faithful. It's not of me, this is God working. And that guy there and then said, I don't want to be like that. He said, that was in my life. There and then, that was in his life. And he said, no, I don't want a part of it. Some of the things we do, we don't even know we're doing if we're faithful to the gospel. How we, next attribute, how they turned from idols to serve the living and true God. The risk was the Thessalonica church would just take Jesus and add him to all the other gods, the God of thunder, the God of the earth, the, the God of motherhood, according to Jess, um, all the, the gods and the false idols and the carvings, that Jesus would just be another one sitting there on the shelf. And Paul says, no, you gave them all up. Jesus became their main priority. Jesus Jesus was their God. Everything else had been forsaken. They left them behind because the risk was there was that he would just be subsumed. And Paul says, no, you didn't do that. You turned to God from them, did the complete 180, much like what Paul did when he met Jesus on the road to Damascus. But more than that, Paul says to serve the living and true God. Paul 
contrasts the living and true God from these idols, from these carvings, from these dead gods that could not do anything, these dead gods that they interpreted as being angry or vengeful or they could be bought off by paying enough money. God contrasts them. Uh, Sorry, Paul contrasts them. And so the Thessalonica church didn't just adopt a new God. They came to serve the living and true God. And it wasn't just serving. Serving as slaves. They were slaves to sin and slaves to righteousness. And finally, to wait. An expectant, a sustained, a patient, trusting, waiting. They knew they'd won the victory. In the world of World Cup football at the moment, it's the waiting in the sense that the championship has already been decided. We know who the winner is and we're just waiting to be presented with the trophy, aren't we? And that's the type of waiting that Paul's talking about here. It is a certain weight that we have. We know the result. It, it's, it's determined already. Jesus has paid the price Jesus is one, he's on, he's risen and he's, he's sitting at the right hand of glory. We have that certain hope in that. We've won the championship and we're just waiting to collect the prize. So, to wrap up almost, can we say these things about our church? as us as individuals, do we carry these attributes? Do we carry the values of work produced by faith, of labour prompted by love, of endurance inspired by hope? Are these true of us? Because if they're true of us, then this letter's pretty encouraging, isn't it? We can go out with a skip knowing that we have been chosen and that God loves us. And the evidence is that these virtues align with us. The evidence in that we have rejected every other God. We have turned from our ways. We are imitating Christ and people are imitating Christ through what we do. And so there's great encouragement. But just to remember, if, if this is true of us, let's not boast. It's not of our doing. It's all of God. God chose us not because of any good thing we have in us, but simply because he loves us. His love abounds and he's chosen us. He's appointed us to do good works and bear fruit, not so that we should benefit, but for his glory. And so you might think, well, hang on a sec, Matt, you've missed the passage, missed the verse, and no, I haven't. Verse 10, because what is our prize? What do we wait for? What is our hope? Is the coming of the Lord Jesus. And Paul sets it out here. What is his prize? His son. We're talking about God's own son of divine character. Where did he come from? From heaven of divine origin. And what has happened? Jesus has been raised from the dead. The verification of of the holiness and righteousness and the power of the Lord Jesus Christ comes through the raising 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the vindication and approval of the Lord Jesus. And of course, his name is Jesus. And he is our saviour. And what has he done? What's the last part of of this passage say? Who rescues us from the coming wrath. For those of us who have the values, working, work produced by faith, labour prompted by love, endurance inspired by hope, and, we, and we've got the evidence of our faith in what we do, we are rescued from the coming wrath. Now, if those things aren't true of you, then these words of no comfort, there is no rescue. So if these things are not true of you, come and see me, come and see one of the elders, talk to a trusted Christian friend. Finally, Matthew 5, you are the light of the world for those of us who are in Christ. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul gives thanks for this church in Thessalonica for their light that shines for others to see their good deeds and to glorify their Father in heaven by how? By their work produced by faith. The labour prompted by love and the endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. My prayer is that this is true of us as a church here at Castle Hill, but also individually for each one of you.